I'll be totally honest with you, those moments are my favourite because you get to the point where you've got your set questions, you've got the questions you're really interested in asking and then you go, it'd be really funny if I ask this question just, just to keep them on their toes because if they're on their toes, the people listening are on their toes. Hi everybody, welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like Steubenville, Ohio, Sturgis, Michigan, Louisville, Kentucky, Lagos, Nigeria, Meppel in the Netherlands, and Buckinghamshire, England. Thanks for joining me for another automotive adventure. And don't forget to invite your friends along. Share the podcast wherever and whenever you can. Also, if you've left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And for those of you who haven't done that yet, I want to ask you, do me a solid. Just tap those five stars right now. And if a bunch of you guys do that, it'll help new listeners discover the show. All right, well, today I've got kind of a special episode for you. It's a conversation with Harry Fipers, who's the host of the Ignition podcast. So I'm always looking at what others are doing in the automotive podcast category because I'm like you. I'm not just a podcaster. I enjoy listening. And I happen to hear Harry's interview with Andy Palmer, who's the former CEO of Aston Martin. And I really enjoyed it. Harry's just in his early 20s. So, you know, I was impressed by his effort. And we started talking online and decided we should do a crossover episode and compare a few notes on our shows and talk about some important cars from Britain and America. Harry's an Englishman, by the way. So this is the result, and it was a fun collaboration, and I recommend you follow the Ignition podcast because Harry's got a lot of great interviews. And uh, anyway, we got a crossover with my pal, Harry Fipers, and that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Great to see you, Harry. Yeah, great to see you too. How's it going? It's good. I'm excited about this. You know, I really enjoy your show. I particularly loved your interview with Andy Palmer. That was fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you. I, and T, I love yours as well. I mean, they're all brilliant. I don't think I could pick one that's, that stands out. But yeah, the quality, the quality of the conversation is amazing. Well, thank you very much. I, I try to be respectful of my listeners' time. You know, we're all so busy now. And, you know, I try to really kind of boil things down, but also you know, give people substance, entertain, but also inform. I try to convey that passion that we all have for for cars and motorcycles. No, it definitely comes across. I mean, it's amazing how you're able to bring stuff out of people as well. The, the, the way to almost have the conversation is I think it's a thing with Americans, especially you're kind of from the age, from a young age, you're taught how to sell yourself. You're taught how to show and tell all this stuff at school. Whereas us Brits, you're told to go to school and that's that's pretty much it. It's all very reclusive. We're all very sort of taken back. So I can see that comes through in your podcasting as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, I guess Brits are known for really sort of not making a big deal of themselves, sort of, you know, you know, it's Definitely. sort of considered rude to talk about yourself, right? Yeah, it's it's um it's that politeness of overly polite, sort of reclusive 
uh, sense of it's something I've had to deal with as well. And something I have to bring out of myself is the, the ability to talk about myself more. Because if, if I do a podcast and only speak about the guest and don't give myself any background, it's not as interesting. I'm pretty sure right. you might, might as well find that as well. Well, Harry, this is kind of a departure for my show because we're gonna we're both podcasters. We're kind of getting into sort of some behind the scenes on our shows today. Uh, your listeners don't know me. My listeners don't know you. So it's a crossover episode. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's brilliant. I think we should probably start with um, how you got into podcasting game, why you started it, and sort of let's go from there. Well, you know, I had a television production background, and, you know, I've always been a car nut. So several years ago, over some cocktails, I was talking with some other car friends, and one of them said, you know, a podcast would be great because we have all of these conversations that just go into the ether, you know, and they're great conversations, and it'd be nice to capture that. And we initially were going to team up on it, but his business took off right about that time. And so he wasn't able to, to, you know, pursue this idea, but I jumped in with both feet. It's been terrific. A little bit more than two years into the show, the response has been amazing. I've had such wonderful guests and just all the experiences surrounding the production of the show have, have been fantastic. I, I'm just having a ball and Every show, I try to go in a little bit of different direction, but also tie everything together. You know, there's sort of a common thread that goes through the show, which is, of course, history, but also how everything is interconnected. For example, a lot of the, the things that we take for granted in cars today, they were invented in the first 10 years of the automobile, right? Yeah. So technology has this sort of fascinating progression, but we forget how advanced things were early on. Yeah, I mean, you talk about technology. I mean, the first car, I think, to have electric windows was a, was it a Studebaker? I think it must have been something along the lines of that. Was and this is the talking about early fifties, and they already had electric windows. Yeah, I'm not sure about Studebaker. I know that Cadillac had electric windows early on in the, mm, I think, late forties. But yes, there are all sorts of little innovations along the way that are interesting. And well, let's take front wheel drive for example. People think of yeah. front wheel drive as sort of a early seventies innovation. But it's as old as the motor car. Yeah, I think it was. It was. I think it wasn't made mass popular, but the, the classic Mini. I mean, you talk about the Morris Mini was the probably the first big mass, mass production car to have the whole. We can turn the engine sideways and fit a family of four in there with their luggage. Yeah, and I think that was really something that Alec and Isagonis really picked up on to make the most of a really small space. Right, and the joke is that the Mini is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Yeah, you really can't fit a lot in a Mini. You know, the packaging of that car is amazing. And it really filled that need in the late 50s when people in, I know that in Britain, but also Europe on the continent, they were still, they were still recovering from the war. You know, fortunately for um, the United States, we didn't have to rebuild like the rest of the world did. Our shores were untouched by that conflict. But so if you think about it in those terms, it's interesting how the Mini filled that need. Yeah, and, and not exactly the Mini as well, the, the Fiat 500, the Cinquecento, I think at the time was. It filled an in for the Italians, and having the um, the little mopeds as well, just to have a the every man's, every man's vehicle. I mean, not to go back to the war, but obviously you've got the Beetle that was, was made out of a, of a wartime, wartime effort just to produce a car that everyone could drive, even though it turned out to be a massive scam. Yeah, and you know, we have the British to thank for the Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> in a weird, twisted way, yeah. Yeah, because after the war, they they decided to go ahead with production on the car. Otherwise, it would have just gone into the dustbin. Yeah, 
I mean, the whole, I mean, the whole of VW can thank us. I mean, if you can put it, you can put it that way, but yeah. And it comes full circle, right? Because now Volkswagen owns all of these, you know, iconic brands. So what about you, Harry, the, the genesis of your show, the ignition podcast? Yeah, I think it, it started out or it started out as a spark, as I like to say, um, leaving school. I wasn't told there was an option for doing my own thing. There was university or college coming out of coming out of school or there was working full time. And there was no help for me to channel my passion for cars into something that would be productive and something that I could forge my own path with. So it took me a couple of years, but after lockdown in the UK, I decided that there's no reason to stop working full time, but I'd be able to do my own thing, which is the medium of podcasting. I think I really have to my dad to thank because he started his own podcast during lockdown as a way to talk to people, as a way to network. And I, I listened to those and I found those to be some of the best conversations I've listened to. And I'm sure you'll agree that this medium is so much deeper and so much denser than just regular TV interviews because you've got so much time to learn about the person, so much time to learn about the history. So I, I really started podcasting when I realized that not only is it a great way to have great conversations, but it's a great way to, to network and a great way to grow your reach within the community that we all love. Yeah, for sure. And I, I do love the long form. Most of my episodes, I think, fall, I think the average time is about 37 or 38 minutes, but I do go longer from time to time. And I think the audience likes that. As I said, you know, because we're all busy, we're all so busy these days. And if you're, I'm a podcast addict, I don't know about you, but I listen to probably 25 different shows. And I listen usually at one and a half times speed because I got to get it in, right? I, you know, I, okay. If I don't do that, then I fall behind and i miss a lot of stuff so yeah i mean with podcasts i mean i listen to about three or four i think um yours especially as it is an occasion i give a listen to um i do it mainly for my my job outside of outside of podcasting i i work in sales so a podcast for me is a great way to learn from professionals and like yourself you, you bring in so much from podcasting i think you do find that the the 30 minutes to an hour is how long people's commutes are my podcast is my show is very structured You've got the early years of how they developed because that's what I'm interested in because obviously from coming out of school, that was my early years. I mean, I, I would go longer if I wanted to. But I mean, like I say, in respect to people's time, we are busy. If I take two hours of your time, you'll be really invested in the podcast. And for someone that's just started, you don't want to take too much people's time. Yeah, and you have to hook them in the first 30 seconds or it's doomed, right? You've just, you've yeah. got to give them something compelling right off the bat. Tell me about the Ignition podcast. Give me the elevator pitch. The elevator pitch. Okay. So the podcast aims to entertain, inspire, and inform. Because if you're a car nut and you want to do something with your passion for cars, I want to be able to help you do that. So the podcast is all about inspiring you to do more with your passion for cars. And if I do that through speaking to CEOs, through YouTubers, through influencers, and really get an idea of how they started, how they're doing it, and what they plan to do. So the idea of the podcast is to give you listening an idea of what is possible with your passion. One of my favorite expressions is I've worked my whole life to become an overnight success, you know, and that's so true of so many people. I just interviewed Patrick Long, the only American factory driver for Porsche. You know, Patrick started in karting. He went to England while he was still in high school. He was doing his studies and racing and the grind, the absolute laser focus that he had is really inspiring. I mean, Maurice, what is, what is the aim for you when it comes to podcasts? As you say, what are your goals? 
Well, the tagline for my show is the people and the stories behind the machines. Yeah. I'm interested in the human side of all of this. And so I do two kinds of episodes. I do what I call storytelling episodes, which are short form audio documentaries. And then the other kind of episode I do is of course the interview show. So yeah, so that's the basics, the people and the stories behind the machines, a little slice of automotive or motorcycle history and heritage in every show. Brilliant. And when it comes to the stories, how much how much effort goes into those? Are you just freeballing it? Do you kind of pick a pick a topic and then do a <laughs> bit of research? Or do you sit there scripting these stories because you want to make it so interesting? You want to make it so entertaining? Well, first, it's what I'm interested in and what I'm curious about. Yeah. I get struck by a topic and I start to dive into it. I do my research. I've got a pretty good automotive library. I mean, uh, obviously, YouTube is a fantastic treasure trove of lots yep. of historic footage, whether it's talking about racing or automobile production in the 30s. You know, there's all these amazing archival clips out there. So the research goes pretty deep. I write a script and I tweak that, you know, several revisions. What I try to do is give people enough information to make it interesting and informative, but not overwhelm them. It has to be digestible at the end of the day. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of stuff behind the scenes because like you say, these these podcasts don't just come out of thin air. <laughs> I really wish they did. But I mean, some of the podcasts that I've listened to, some of the best ones are just those freeform conversations. They are just the unedited raw footage, but they can go on for hours. When I listen to your show, there's no particular, sometimes you meander and that's fun because I don't, I'm not sure what's coming next. Yeah. I'll be totally honest. Those moments are my favorite because you get to the point where You've got your set questions. You've got the questions you're really interested in asking a certain guest. And then you go, it'd be really funny if I ask this question. Or you'll go back to something they said 20 minutes prior, just just to keep them on their toes. Because if they're on their toes, the people listening are on their toes. Harry, I'm curious, who's been your favorite guest? Okay. <laughs> My favorite guest. Now, I don't want to put uh, you on the spot. I mean, because maybe That's you fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say Avigail Andre. And for those that don't know her, she is an amazing woman. She's started off owning her own business and she ran through that and she did the hard graft that way. She she made her own business. It was quite successful. But obviously lockdown was a big thing for all of us. It took away so much of our time, took away so much of our routine that I think as people, we were all stripped back to the bare metal. And she found a real solace in wanting to help people and a real solace in wanting to be able to give advice, consumer advice to those. And she found a way to do it through high performance. She found a way to do through her mindset, through her, her grit, her determination. She, she found a way to reinvent herself. I mean, who would yours be? You know, I almost want to say my favorite guest is my latest guest because it's always just, it gives me such a thrill to, to talk to someone and learn from them and hear their story. And I'm always focused on the latest, right? So right now you're my favorite guest, <laughs> but, um, uh, one would be Arash Farboud, who is an Englishman who builds his own Arash supercars. And um, he's sort of a futurist, innovator, entrepreneur. His vision for his cars is raw. And you know, it, it comes from his love of Le Mans. So his cars are not filled with luxury and amenities. They are performance weapons. And I really like yeah. that. And Arash wants to get into space exploration and all sorts of new technologies. So he's fascinating to talk to. Brilliant. We've spoken all about the people on the podcast, but I mean, we did want to go into the cars that obviously oh, absolutely. Make, make up the DNA of who we are. We wanted to do a sort of top jump style shoot off. 
Okay, and we should probably explain what Top Trumps is because I did not know about this game before you mentioned it. So Top Trumps is, I mean, for those in America that might not have it, I don't know, Maria said it to me over over a chat that he wasn't too sure what it was. But it's it's a card game. It basically is the stats, sort of like, let's use football or soccer as an example. You've got your goals scored over a season. Explaining a car's stats, the horsepower or the displacement, or there can be the top speed, they can be the Le Mans wins one or the Grand Prix finished. So it's really the top specs, top trumps of each of each car. Okay, so now that you've explained that, I don't know that I understood the assignment entirely. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have a ton of specs on the cars that I picked, but we each picked five cars that we want to talk about. Yeah. Your favorites and mine. And so we'll just go through them and you know, this is just for fun. There's no, there's no, we haven't put any money on it. But, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be opposed to that. Oh, no. All right. So what's your first pick? My first pick is, let's go with the Aston Martin Valkyrie. Okay. Prototype, brilliant piece of engineering, obviously. I don't want to call it British because let's put it, Aston Martin aren't exactly British anymore, but we'll go with the whole brand of being Aston. So you're looking at a sort of 6.5 litre V12, this incredibly high revving engine, lightweight, sort of car that was is Le Mans inspired but brings all of that and all the tech from the current F1 team into sort of modern day and the production cars so it was a car that I wanted to start off with just because it's obviously so diverse I mean Jeremy Clarkson drove it on what was the Grand Tour when we knew it when it when it was the reviewing show that it was but it's it's a car that just stands out to me as one of the best hyper cars on the market yeah it is a brilliant car have you been up close to a Valkyrie I've seen one. I've not been able to hear one. Amazing. But yeah, they're brilliant things. Yeah. All right. So my list, by the way, just fair warning, is kind of going in chronological order of history. Right? Okay. All right. So my first pick are the Miller racing cars of the 1920s and 30s. So Harry Miller was a guy from Wisconsin, which is in the, the Midwest of, of the United States. Basically, Wisconsin is famous for being America's dairy land. I was going to say cheese is what, I've, is what I know it is. Right. Cheese, <laughs> Green Bay Packers, all of that. So Harry Miller was from Wisconsin and he had worked for Ransom Olds, who started Oldsmobile. And eventually he made his way out to Los Angeles. He had developed a number of different carburetor designs that were very successful, some of which he sold off and made a tidy profit on. And then later he developed his own single seat racing cars, some of which were front wheel drive, some of which had a Miller straight eight engine that developed quite a bit of power. So the Miller racing cars are significant because of what went on to become what's called the Offenhauser engine, developed by Fred Offenhauser, who was a self-taught engineer and machinist who had worked for Harry Miller. And Offenhauser basically chopped the Miller straight eight in half and developed this overhead cam monoblock four-cylinder. That engine dominated Indianapolis champ car racing for decades, it really didn't get eclipsed until 1975 when the Cosworth came on the scene. And that sort of became the dominant yeah. engine in IndyCar. But so what's great about the Offy engine is because it's a monoblock, the cylinder head is not a separate piece, right? So there's no head gasket to blow. So you can yeah. put a ton of power through these engines. They were over a thousand horsepower at the end, like huge turbo boost. I think something like 40 PSI of boost. So, but it all started with Harry Miller, his brilliance along with Fred Offenhauser. And for like 
50 years, the Offy engine was the dominant engine in IndyCar racing. Yeah, I think I'm going to lose this by the sounds amount of research that you've done into these cars. Um, mine have just been, the, the, like I said, I, I, obviously we've we've both had different views of this assignment. So mine have just been stats and figures. I've got a bit of history to the cars, but I think if I'm gonna if I'm gonna pick a car that, that to go next, it would it would be the McLaren F1. Now I'm staying on the um, the topic of V12s at the moment because. I mean, us Brits, we've got a V12, and that's that's pretty much it. I mean, they are mostly German V12s. I will put that out there. I mean, obviously, the BMW, I think it's the, the S70 V12. This was a, a V12 meant for the 7 Series in the 90s, and it was a V12 that when Gordon Murray was designing the car, he looked for something that would be able to rev high, rev quick, and be able to fit in his car. So... What he did with the the flow of the engine, the flow of the heads, worked with BMW, worked with I think it was Cosworth as well, had some influence in the, in the engine. It's the highest; it was the highest speed naturally aspirated engine car. So you're looking at a car that did 248 miles an hour before Bugatti came along and started chucking four turbos on an engine. I mean, again, VW, but there we are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Gordon Murray within himself, the man who who's now engineering T50s and T70s, these these fan cars that were used in F1 originally to predate to predate the McLaren. Obviously, when McLaren were doing the car, they didn't want to put a fan in it because of the drag, the price, it would just go up and up and up. So to make the production numbers better, the fan got rid of, but then the engine was really the beating heart of this car. And, I mean, to talk about it, to go on about it, it's the GT as well and the, the McLaren F1 GTR to, to go out and win so many races as well as it did. It's a car that isn't just a production car, it's so much more. So I think the brilliance of the F1 is the fact that it performs so well and yet is so untemperamental. Yeah. You know, Ferraris are famous for being temperamental and, and, and requiring utterly ridiculous maintenance, but the F1 is a reliable supercar. And of course, Gordon Murray's brilliant. All right, Harry, my second pick is the Ford Model A, which celebrates its 90th anniversary this year. I, th- I thought you might go for something with that Model T, Model A, sort of that Model T bucket sort of thing, but yeah, okay. All right, so here's why I picked the Model A. Although the Model T was used by hot rodders, the Model A was the first affordable V8 in the United States. The first ones were like 65 horsepower. They weren't all that powerful, but they lent themselves to souping up, hot rodding, you know, you know bolt-on performance parts. And there was a whole yeah. cottage industry around that including stuff like cylinder head kits that you could buy that would convert it from a flathead to an overhead valve. And so after World War II, hot rodding was a big deal. Guys came home from the war. They had all these technical skills that they learned in the military. They had some money in their pocket and they were just looking for thrills and they they ended up going hot rodding and the Model A was the car to build. Yeah, I mean, you saw a movie like Bonnie and Clyde as well. I mean, to name a few folk heroes. I mean, not just the Model A, but any Ford. With a V8, you're looking at sort of people hot running and want to find their cars that are on the police, that are on the um, moonshine era. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny that you mentioned that because there was a, an American gangster named John Dillinger. And Dillinger actually wrote a letter to Henry Ford complimenting him on his fine V8 automobile. Prior to that, performance was expensive. It wasn't yeah. as accessible to the common man. I mean, if we're talking about cars that sort of are a revolutionary I think it'd be silly for me not to talk about the Mini Cooper, the common people's car. I mean, if we talk about a particular car, 
my favourite has got to be the the John Cooper works. So you're talking about the, the original JC Mini Cooper 1965 Cooper S, and that car not only not only did it did it set apart the I think it was sort of 43 horsepower the original A series engine had, but it brought about the A series which had 65 or something something completely different. I mean you're talking about a four cylinder, but it was it was enough to to win Monte Carlo for instance, for a front-wheel drive car, and not only to beat them, but to, to thrash them by matters, matters of minutes in rally is extraordinary. So yeah, I think the Mini Mark 1 1965 John Cooper Works has got to be up there for me. I'm trying to recall if there were other front-wheel drive cars that were prominent in rallying at that time, and I can't think of one right offhand. And the front-wheel drive certainly helped the Mini be successful in rallying. Plus, you got Patty Hopkirk, who's a total legend, right? Yeah. I mean, he definitely helped. He definitely helped the sort of <laughs> the mini movement going forward. All right. My next pick is the 1955 Chevrolet. Now, the car itself was popular, but it's really about the engine. So this was the small block Chevy, which started as a 265 cubic inch engine, which is about 4.3 liters. And it was developed by a guy named Ed Cole. Ed Cole had come over from Cadillac. And Cadillac had the first post-war overhead valve V8 engine, the 331 cubic inch. And that was very successful in racing, as a matter of fact. Um, the, the Allard J2, which was built in England by Sidney Allard, oftentimes they would put a Cadillac 331 in that car. Hmm. So Ed Cole was brought over in like 1952 to Chevrolet. What they wanted to do was replace their aging six-cylinder engine with something more modern and what he came up with in just a few weeks with some other designers was the 265 cubic inch small block that engine went from 265 cubic inches to over 400 by the end of its run and like 375 horsepower the other significant thing about it is it was one of the first american engines that would develop one horsepower per cubic inch and it was affordable I mean, you look at stuff like that sort of area, the Tiger Sunbeam with a 2.5 litre V8, which I think barely pushed 160. So, I mean, you're looking at V8s that era. And for something to be able to do that in a Chevrolet as well was something a bit bigger. And to do with cubic like horsepower per cubic inch is amazing. I think talking about amazing cars, I mean, I'm going to take it away from some sports, but the Land Rover, the ability to go right, wind in 4x4. I mean, as I assure you, this is another Willys Jeep extraordinary in what it does brilliant um it's the first of its kind to be four-wheel drive the first of its kind to be used by the u.s army and to be able to cross those lines and to be able to do what it was in utility and stuff is amazing the the series one land rover was the prototype was actually built on a willys jeep chassis it was yeah the other great thing about the land rover was that they made use of surplus war material so the reason the body's aluminum is because steel was very expensive they had to import it but they had plenty of aluminum laying around from aircraft manufacturing during the war they used war surplus paint on the early land rovers and everything was so simple because they didn't have a lot of research and development money so they kept it as basic as possible and it was a great formula and like you say, the surplus paint, the surplus materials. I mean, now you're looking at stuff like, I think the most desirable Land Rover is a 1993 US spec because it's one of the last proper 110 defenders to be suited with a V8. And let's not forget also the Camel Trophy. You know, most of the time they were using Land Rovers, whether it was a Series 3 or a Defender or the new Discovery. Yeah, I mean, Dakar. 
for instance, the first first Dakar, I think, in 1979. That was an Land Rover that won that. By the way, Harry, how do you like the new Defender? Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the... Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, no comment. All right, my next pick is the Shelby Cobra. I thought you'd put this one out. Really? Yeah. All right, well, here's why. It is a pure sports car, but it's an amalgam of England and America. And I love that. So, you know, AC Ace body and chassis mated to an American drivetrain, great formula, lightweight, very powerful, excellent competition car. I mean, it, it birthed the GT40, didn't it? The, the, with Ford and Shelby. The fact that he had such a, a winning pedigree with the cars. Yeah. And the cool thing about the Cobra was that you could buy one and go racing that same day. It basically needed nothing. Yeah. I think it was the, the classic American saying, you. You buy on Sunday, we we buy on Monday, wins on Sunday. Right, yeah. Race on Sunday, sell on Monday. Exactly. Yeah. All right, what's your next pick? The Caterham 7. So what was known as Lotus 7? I mean, you're talking about Gordon Murray, but then you've got Colin Chapman. And Colin Chapman, what he did with Lotus was amazing. That simple recipe of simplify, then add lightness. I mean, you're talking about a, a four-cylinder engine that was... Not even forcing it, I think it's three cylinder, a 663 Kawasaki engine that he then thought, well, I've got an aluminium body, I've got aluminium frame rails, let's put it in there and let's race and let's see what we can do. But the Lotus 7 was, was, was the first car that Catrum thought could be, could be produced and to be able to, the working man to build his own sports car. So I think the Lotus 7 is pinnacle in terms of British sports and British engineering. Yeah, I like them. You know, they're not particularly attractive cars. They're very, yeah. very functional. They're tossable. You know, they're, it's like they're on rails through the, through the corners. Great car. Yeah. I think it's, it's that sort of modern day terms. You're looking at sort of two liter force in the Mercedes engines that are pushing out 420 horsepower, which is insane from a two liter. And they're now going into those cars. It's just the car hasn't changed for for 40 years the, the, the basic dna of that car has not changed for 60 years it's the engines that have got better it's the so you're looking at something like the 720r in Caterham. that is just it's the same car you would have got in the 60s but it's just a bit more powerful and by the way this brings up another difference between the american approach and the british approach which is displacement so you know americans are in love with big v8s large displacement engines Whereas the British and French, German, Italians have always done with less. And I know that's a function mostly of tax laws in those countries. The bigger the, your engine, the more tax you pay. And we haven't had that scheme here, but um, they've made it work, haven't they? I mean, from one liter all up to about three liters. I mean, yeah, you're looking at sort of in the current market, British hot hatches, our equivalent would be a Ford Focus ST. And that's a 1.5 liter three cylinder turbocharged that's putting out 280, 300 horsepower from a, from a three cylinder engine. So, I mean, yes, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of there's no replacement for displacement, but I mean, if you look at the market today, you look at the market in terms of petrol prices and you look at the market in terms of emissions, what we can do with a three liter engine is, is insane. I think there, there is no argument for V8 because the sound, the smoothness is unparalleled. But if you're looking for how much horsepower you can get out of an engine, I mean, looking at Ford in the UK and Mount Tune and stuff like that, they're able to get stupid numbers out of a three-cylinder engine. So there's no reason why you can't have a three-cylinder, four-cylinder engine in a car. I mean, an instance for that, sorry to go on, but it's AMG. They've got rid of the V8 and they're now looking for four-cylinder engines, two-liter engines, and put and mating them with hybrid. 
the the electric engine drivetrain. So there's no reason why you can't have the same performance for less emissions and less and less price. But yeah. All right, my last pick, Harry, is the 2020 C8 Corvette. So this is the eighth generation Corvette. The significant thing about the car is that it's the first mid-engine production Corvette. Mm. In the early to middle 1960s, Chevrolet's engineering department did some experimental mid-engine cars, but they never really got serious about a production mid-engine Corvette until just a few years ago, about 2016. It's a world beater. So you can get over 400 horsepower and over 400 pound-feet of torque for $60,000. Well, at least that's the manufacturer's suggested retail price. Dealers are marking them up tremendously and everybody's unhappy about that, but that's how it goes. But it is every bit as good as a Ferrari and for a third of the price. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, you'd be stupid. Let's go for it. Yeah. And it's a beautiful car and the technology inside it is amazing. Like the chassis of the C8 is all aluminum space frame and some other modern materials. I think there's some carbon in there, some high impact plastic. But I saw one, a cutaway C8 Corvette a few years ago. And just to look at all the details, pretty impressive. And Chevrolet also had to pioneer new manufacturing methods in order to produce the space frame chassis in the C8. So lots of cool technology. And they are planning an electric Corvette. I don't know that whether it will be a gas electric hybrid or whether it will be a pure electric. By the way, which manufacturer do you think will be the last to have an internal combustion engine option in terms of sports cars completely ferrari i think there's there's no other way i mean let's look at the current brands you look at the major sport manufacturers aston martin already going electric the last manufacturer to go hybrid to go fully fully hybrid or fully electric would be ferrari all right your pick is ferrari i'm gonna go with porsche okay i see where you're coming from the synthetic fuel yeah, and I just think that, you know, they've got the Taycan. It's an amazing car. But the 911, I believe, will always have an internal combustion engine option as long as regulations and the law allow it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm now, now looking at that, I, I can see where you're coming from because they're all about the driving experience, aren't they? They're all about offering a manual option because without the manual option, you lose the the connection to the four wheels. All right, so are are we all done with our picks now? I think that's it. Yeah, I think we discussed the best of British and the best of American cars. I think that's, like you say, I, I mean, I fully agree that the C8 Corvette has got to be one of the best. But I mean, I'm surprised you didn't pull out the 1800 horsepower F5 Venom, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, I was thinking more in terms of production cars. That is a production car, but you know what I mean? It's a It's quite a specialized machine. Of course. But yeah, I think that's a good garage right there. I mean, if we had that collection, I don't think we'd be left wanting. No, I'd be happy with any of those cars, personally. Well, Harry, this has been fun. Complete departure from what I normally do. But I have to say, I really enjoy your show. You've always got a great mix of guests. Now, if people want to find the show, all they have to do is go to their favorite podcast app and look for The Ignition Podcast, right? Correct. Yeah. Any Anywhere you listen, just type The Ignition Podcast and you'll find me there. Excellent. And then on Instagram, you're at we are ignition, W-E-R ignition. Correct. Yeah. All right, cool. I'll put links in the show notes. Harry Fipers, host of the Ignition Podcast. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It was great. No, thank you for your time. Doing this, having the ability to speak to you and learn so much from you, it's been a pleasure. So thank you for being on. My pleasure, Harry. I'll be looking forward to hearing more of your show and it's been a treat. 
That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. My thanks once again to Harry Fipers. Go follow the Ignition Podcast. And I'll see you back here on Wednesday, November 2nd, when we'll be talking about the next generation of car collecting. My guest is longtime journalist and author Robert C. Yeager. Don't forget, if you want to support the show, just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage, and you can pitch in as little as two bucks, which is always appreciated. So until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.